Our scripture reading today is from Peter's first letter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Let me ask God to guide us first. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is written and we can read and study. We want to listen to your spirit as you enliven it to us, make us alive to it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. I'm just loving this uh, theme of community that's coming out in our service today, and it's so rich. Uh, we are a, a very gifted uh, church, and by that I don't mean that we're, we're skilled, but that we're blessed by God uh, with uh, so many uh, wonderful gifts. And um, I want to highlight just one more today. Uh, throughout this series, uh, this fall, uh, on the Fruit of the Spirit, uh, every week you've probably noticed our bulletin cover has been different. And uh, Olive and Emma Jean Austin have uh, every week created for us a bulletin cover, and they've just done such a, a wonderful job. Could we thank them together? Uh, just, uh, I've, I've just loved what they've done and, and so grateful for it. Uh, this, uh, today, we're, we're talking about self-control, as, as the cover shows, and this might seem disconnected uh, from this theme of, of community uh, that um, Shannon just highlighted so well. But I, I hope that by the end of the, our, our uh, message today that you'll see that it's actually uh, essential to loving community, uh, the, the virtue of self-control. Throughout this fall, we've, we've been studying these virtues, these nine virtues uh, that the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, as we come to this theme of self-control, there are several different words that are translated as self-control in the New Testament. And we see two of them in our text today, in, in 1 Peter uh, 4, 7, 
where Peter tells his readers to be self-controlled and sober-minded. In uh, Paul's listing of the fruit of the Spirit that we heard earlier in our assurance of pardon uh, from Galatians 5, the word that he uses there, self-control, is another Greek word. But you need all three of these to get the full picture of what it means to be self-controlled. Together, they portray a certain kind of person. Someone who maintains control of themselves mentally, emotionally, and physically. A person who has self-control mentally makes sound judgments. They can distinguish between what is true and what is false because they're able to, to think things through properly. This, this kind of person uh, who has mental self-control doesn't easily buy into hoaxes or, or conspiracy theories because their thinking is not going to be controlled by someone else. That's mental self-control. A, a person who has self-control emotionally is not driven by their feelings. Our, our emotions can wax and wane depending on circumstances and, and our stress. But if you have emotional self-control, you're not swept away by your feelings. You can respond in the right way and at the right time to, to difficult situations. Finally, a person who has self-control physically is able to exercise their will to do what is right. You have the power to choose to do something and then follow through on, on what it is that you've decided to do. So this is what we're thinking about today. What does it mean to have this kind of self-control in a holistic way? physically, emotionally, and, and mentally. Last week, we saw that gentleness requires self-control. We, we define gentleness as strength under control. But all the fruit of the Spirit, in one way or another, requires self-control in loving others. And this is probably why self-control uh, comes last in the list. So next week, we're going to uh, finish this series uh, by looking at one last virtue, the virtue of humility, which isn't in the the list of the fruit of the Spirit, but it's, it's so essential uh, to obtaining any of them that, that I wanted to devote a week to it. Uh, but today, I want to invite us to think about this, this idea of self-control and, and what we learn from this text in 1 Peter. Now, let me just say, there, there are some things in this passage that we're not going to get to. So if, if I don't address your question, uh, something that jumps out at you about this text, you know, talk to me after the service and and we can, we can discuss it. There are just three points here that I want to highlight related to self-control. Why self-control matters, what self-control looks like, and who self-control is for. So first, why does self-control matter? And let's begin again with verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This verse teaches us that self-control requires sacrifice, even some degree of suffering or, or pain. Peter gives Jesus himself as the model who suffered in the flesh for the sins of the world. He pursued the will of God, even in the face of opposition and persecution. And Peter tells believers to arm themselves with the same way of thinking or the same intention as Jesus. And he gives a reason why. He says, 
Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He doesn't mean that suffering somehow makes up for sin, like, like a balancing of the scales. He, he means that if you show that you are willing to suffer rather than to sin, that you're really done with sin. You're done with it. You've ceased from it. This is the mindset that we see in Jesus, that he was willing to go to the cross rather than to respond to his enemies with vengeance or hatred, even though that meant suffering unjustly. This kind of self-control requires discipline. In our culture today, discipline is something that makes sense to us in some areas of life more than others. So, for example, in our society, we appreciate very much discipline in athletics and academics. In athletics, we we admire the discipline of athletes who sacrifice for the sake of excellence in their sport. Uh, We embrace the motto, no pain, no gain. And we all know that to be great at a sport requires hard work, practice, repetition, we respect professional athletes and their, their mastery, their, their real mastery of self-control, at least, at least physically. And we find the same thing in, in academics. You know, we don't all have the same academic aspirations, but we know that being a student is hard work. And if you want to go to graduate school or if you want to become a doctor or an engineer or, or excel in any field, it takes enormous concentration and effort and and discipline. So if we recognize that that discipline is required in these other areas of life, uh, areas that we admire, I wonder why it is that sometimes we hesitate to embrace discipline and even sacrifice morally and and, and spiritually. This isn't what we find in the Bible. As I'm sure you noticed today, today is the, the Madison Marathon. Uh, and uh, for the Apostle Paul, uh, running a race was one of his key metaphors for the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, right, the the crown of victory. But we do it to receive an imperishable wreath, one that will last forever. So he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So salvation is by grace, but Paul makes clear the Christian life still requires hard work like running a race. Let me offer an illustration of what this looks like. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Great Divorce, he tells a parable about some ghosts from hell who get on a tour bus to heaven. And as the story goes on, you learn the stories of the various ghosts on this tour and their struggles and And what is needed, uh, what would be needed for them to find freedom? And one of the ghosts that you meet is kept from heaven uh, by his lust in in the form of a little red lizard that sits on his shoulder and whispers in his ear. And the ghost encounters an angel 
who offers to remove the lizard so that the man may be purified and enter into heaven. And there's just one condition. He must let the angel kill the lizard. And here's how the conversation goes uh, between the angel and the ghost. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Please, I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. So this conversation goes on for a while longer, and, and after some more talk and hesitation, the angel finally gets close to the lizard again, and the ghost cries out, Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. The angel says, It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now, the man replies. I never said it wouldn't hurt you, the angel says. I said it wouldn't kill you. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Often, this is what we're like with our sin. We don't really want it killed. We don't really want to exercise our self-control over it. So we settle for silencing it temporarily or compromising on a gradual process that allows us to keep it. We're often like St. Augustine who prayed as a young man struggling with sexual purity. Lord, he said, make me holy, but not yet. In the great divorce, uh, the man finally does allow the lizard to be killed, and it changes him in ways that he could never have imagined before. He's healed and made whole, and the lizard transforms into this amazing stallion. His desire is both purified and empowered. He jumps onto the stallion, and they dash off into the heights of heaven. We don't all struggle with the same kind of sin, but we're all like this ghost in allowing things to master us, even small things, rather than give them up into God's hands. A man named John Cassian, who was one of the fathers of the early Christian monastic movement, uh, says this, a person who has not conquered the level places cannot progress to the heights and much less will he grasp things that are outside himself 
if he has been unable to understand things that are within himself. This is why self-control matters. It's on this path that we experience lasting change. So if self-control matters, what does it look like? It looks like more than just resisting temptation. Self-control does not mean just rejecting things that are bad, but choosing to, re- to embrace things that are good. Not just turning away from sin, but turning towards goodness, like the man and the lizard being transformed into these glorious creatures who are now free to run into heaven. Peter says in 4.7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. By, by the word end here, he, he means more than God's judgment at the end of history. The Greek word is telos, which means purpose or goal. Uh, we could say that the goal of all things is here. Therefore, be self-controlled and, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Your prayers are what direct you toward the right goal, what you long for and you, you desire more than anything else. And when you have a faith and a hope that is greater than anything else in the world, greater than your own desire for success or, or the ad, admiration of others, then you can choose what is right even when it results in, uh, in suffering or, or, or difficulty for yourself. On Friday, my daughter and I saw a documentary play at, at the Art Lit Lab uh, off East Washington about a, a young woman named Sophie Scholl, who was a college student in the 1940s in Nazi Germany. Uh, with her brother Hans, Sophie was convicted of high treason and exe- executed by guillotine uh, after uh, she and her brother were discovered distributing anti-Nazi leaflets at the University of Munich in, in 1943. In high school, both uh, Sophie and Hans had been members of the Hitler Youth. But in college, they and a group of friends began to meet secretly in the home of a Christian professor who encouraged them to question what was happening in Germany at the time and to follow their conscience. And these students formed a nonviolent resistance movement that they called the White Rose. And they began to pass out leaflets that questioned Hitler's rule and, and the success of the war. And it's these leaflets that eventually led to their arrest. Sophie Scholl's diaries and letters have been published. And if you read through them, it becomes clear that she was motivated by a deep faith. It was when she began to believe that there was a truth and a power greater than the state that she found the strength, even as a 21-year-old college student, to stand up against Hitler, even at the cost of her life. Most of us are not faced with such a dramatic choice, but for all of us, there is a choice to be made of what we will worship, what we will aim for, and what we will do in the place that God has put us to act faithfully. The Apostle Peter expects Christians, as they live this kind of life, to be different from the society around them. He says in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He says, you've had enough time to do these things, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, 
orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let, let me say a few words about this list, because it, it's important to see all that he includes here. There's certainly an emphasis on, on sexual morality, sensuality, passions, orgies. These are all ways in which uh, sex might be undisciplined outside the covenant of marriage. But that's not the only thing we find on this list. There's also drunkenness, drinking parties, and lawless or, or forbidden uh, idolatry. And all of these are common ways that people may lose their self-control, come under the control of destructive forces. So you might lose your, your self-control sexually uh, through inner desires that you're unable to manage, but you also might lose self-control because of social pressure, like the drinking parties. Or sometimes it's social, economic, or political forces that assert their control over us in ways that that make us stand out if we reject them for a higher allegiance. In the ancient world, all of those forces, uh, social, political, economic, all of them were associated with, with idols and, and the pantheon of the gods, which is why Peter mentions idolatry here. His point is that, is that if you believe that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then you are no longer under the control of anything in this world, whether that's your own inner struggle other people, or larger forces. You are free to live a new kind of life. This brings us to our last point today. Who is self-control for? This is kind of a trick question uh, because self-control is not just for yourself. Self-control is for a community. And that's what we see in verses 8 to 11. Uh, he says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In uh, his book on Christian character, N.T. Wright uh, distinguishes between the kind of virtue that was common and valued in the Greek and Roman world and what made Christianity distinctive. And I put a quote on the reflections page of the bulletin that you can, you can look at. Uh, he says there this, we have here stumbled upon one of the most obvious differences between Christian virtue and that of the ancient pagans. Pagan virtue aimed at cultivating hero figures, brave, resourceful leaders, especially in war. Aristotle's ideal of virtue was, granted, developed within the context of the polis, the city-state, since, as he rightly saw, humans are social animals. But the virtues, the Roman virtues, remain those of the individuals who stand out from the crowd. Christian virtue is, by definition, not like that. It is a team sport, and it can be effective only when each member of the large and diverse team is playing his or her unique and distinctive part in careful relation to every other member and for the good of the team as a whole. 
This is exactly what we find in 1 Peter. The community that Peter portrays here is not a collection of autonomous individuals, but a community of self-sacrificial love for others. How do we know that the love that he calls for here is, is a sacrificial kind? Well, notice what he says. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The image of love covering sin here is not an image of, of hiding or ignoring or, or, or covering up things that are wrong. This is an image of forgiveness. It means being honest about the way in which you've been sinned against and then choosing to respond in a way that is loving. This is not easy love that he calls us to here. This is self-sacrificial love. And he goes on, he talks about hospitality. About hospitality, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, we see here, this is, this is not easy hospitality. This requires sacrifice. The, the fact that they might be tempted to grumble shows that this, this kind of hospitality is not simply uh, entertaining. It required uh, sacrifice. It, this might be uh, something else we could add to Shannon's word about what it means to be a transient community. It means that we're a community of, of hospitality at our, at our heart. And then finally, Peter says, whatever gift you have received is meant to be used ultimately in the service of others. You are only a steward of God's gifts. So, we said earlier that the Christian life is like a race that requires discipline and endurance. And I'm definitely not an athlete in any way, shape, or form, but I have a lot of respect for uh, those of you who are more athletic. And, and I had a conversation with James Jenninga uh, yesterday about a, a half marathon that he recently ran in Detroit. And one thing that I suspected was true that he was able to confirm for me is that in the running community, uh, there's not a lot of shaming that happens around how advanced uh, different runners might be. The kinds of questions that come up when you talk to someone who is training for a marathon are things like, how's your training going? You know, did you do your run today? What's your personal goal? Did you finish the race? As we come to the end of this series on the fruit of the Spirit, I wonder if we might take a similar approach in our relationships with one another. Can we admit that, that we're all learners here? We're all on the way. None of us has arrived. We're all in training. And might it be good to ask one another, how's your training going? Where are you in the race? Think of the, the hundreds of people out on the street today, uh, the runners, but also those on the sidelines, cheering them on. That's what we can be and do for one another. We can do this because this is what Jesus has done for each one of us. He's finished the race. He's died and risen again, and his victory is offered to each one of us as a gift of faith. When you trust in his grace and in his power, 
He will give you the strength to stay in the race, even in your weaknesses and your struggles. He's cheering you on. Here's how St. Augustine prayed in his confessions. Oh, the twisted roads I walked. But look, you're here, freeing us from our unhappy wandering, setting us firmly on your track, comforting us and saying, run the race. I'll carry you. I'll carry you clear to the end. And even at the end, I'll carry you. Friends, you can count on him. He promises to be faithful. He encourages you to, to run the race. And he promises, I will carry you. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today with all our neediness and, and weakness, believing that your power is made perfect in our weakness. We ask for your help, for your grace, for your spirit. Make us to be people that you call us to be, reflecting the character and, and love of Jesus. And make us to be the community that you call us to be uh, for the sake of the city and the world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.